I wonder if we ever try to keep God in a box. Do we try and keep him confined to parts of our lives? Do we try and keep him out of sight when we want to be in control, when we want to do our own thing and just bring him out when we think we need him to sort out one of our problems or to help us when we're in trouble? Is that even possible? Will God allow us to do this? And if he did, would that be enough for us? Do we just need a little bit of God in our lives again and again? Well, Psalm 24 disagrees. It tells us that if we want God to be in our lives... If we want to experience all of the blessings that he alone can give, then we need to welcome him as the king of glory. We need to welcome him as the king over everything. We're going to read this amazing psalm together now. From verse 1 down to the end, Psalm 24. If you've got a Bible, look on. If not, just listen on as I read it to you. The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Saviour. Such is the generation of of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O your gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Tradition indicates that this psalm was written for the occasion of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. This ark was an ornate, gold-covered wooden box that was placed by Moses into the tabernacle, into the innermost room of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. And this ark symbolised the presence of God. The presence of God among his people. And 2 Samuel chapter 6 describes how David brought the ark into Jerusalem, the capital city of the people of God, and into the tent that he prepared for it. It was an amazing procession with sacrifices and singing and dancing. And so some people suggest that this is why David wrote, Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. So although we can't be absolutely sure 
This psalm is perhaps a poetic call to the gates of, and, and doors of Jerusalem to open wide for the triumphant entry of the symbol of God's presence. It's like a call to the people of God to welcome God into the very heart of their city, into the very heart of their lives. However, like many of these psalms that we've been looking at over the last few weeks, there's a greater fulfilment of them in Jesus. About a thousand years after the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem, Jesus rode a donkey into that very same city. And Matthew recorded that this fulfilled Zechariah's prophecy, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And to some extent, the disciples and other people there that day recognised what was happening. Many of them, they didn't fully understand Jesus' true identity, but they believed that Jesus was the promised king. And so they threw their cloaks on the ground and waved palm branches in celebration and they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But many of the people there that day in Jerusalem, of course, didn't recognise what was happening. They didn't recognise Jesus as their king. They rejected him. They accused him. They put him on trial. They ultimately flogged him and nailed him to a cross. They did not welcome their coming king, as the psalm says. But one day, Jesus is going to come back again. And this time, everyone will see him. Jesus said about all the nations of the earth that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And so when Jesus comes back again, every knee will ultimately have to bow. And every tongue ultimately will have to confess that Jesus Christ is the King of glory. That he is the Lord of all. But I don't think the psalm just looks back at history. Nor does it just look forward to the amazing events sometime in the future. I think it also has a call for us today. To, be, to lift up your heads, O your gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. That the King of glory may come in. I think this psalm challenges us to welcome the King of glory into our lives. It confronts us with the question, are we going to open wide the gates of our lives? Our families, our church, and allow Jesus to come in. And if we're going to say yes to this, then we need to know who we're going to allow into our lives. And what he comes to do. And so this psalm asks us 
twice the same question. Who is this King of glory? Who is he, the King of glory? Who is the one who wants to come into our lives? What is he like? What can he do? What does he demand of us? What role does he come to take in our lives? Well, I think this is what David's psalm here answers for us this morning. So that's what we try and answer. Who is the one who wants to come and take, take his role in our lives? And what role is he coming to take? Well, first of all, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The King of glory owns everything. He is the rightful owner of the whole earth. Every nation belongs to him. Every resource is rightfully his. Every field, every animal, every property, every business, every investment, every possession, every person. That means he's sovereign over it all. If he owns everything in this world, then he deserves to be in charge of it all. He deserves to be in charge of us. Of course, that's unacceptable to many people today. Our world teaches us to say things like, it's my life and I'll do whatever I want with it. I'll be who I want to be. I'll do what I feel like doing. I'll believe what I think is right. And nobody has has the right to tell me that I'm wrong. That's the way of this world today. But Jesus claims the right. Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That means if we are going to welcome Jesus into our lives, then we need to welcome him as nothing less than the Lord. The Lord of all. Jesus won't come into our lives as a hobby. There's a little interest on the side. Or he won't come into our lives as an advisor, just to give us some advice now and again. He won't come into our lives as a part-time assistant, just to help out whenever we feel overwhelmed. He won't come into our lives just as an emergency service. Just for times of crisis. Jesus won't be honoured by just one day a week given to him. Or just 10% of our income handed over to him. Or a couple of minutes of quiet time a day. Or any other kind of religious observance. He will only come into our lives as the king over all. Why is that? What gives Jesus the right to claim ownership of our lives? Well, recently there have been a number of cases in the courts over claims of ownership. For example, earlier this year, Ed Sheeran, he was sued for a hundred million dollars 
over his 214 hit song, Thinking Out Loud, by the copyright owners of a guy called Marvin Gaye. Now, all the older people know who Marvin Gaye is, all the younger people say, Who? The copyright owners for this guy, he's dead, so he's really old, eight years ago. They claimed that Sheeran copied, listen to this, the melody, the rhythms, the harmonies, the drums, the bass line, the backing chorus, the tempo, the syncopation and the looping of one of Gay's songs from 1973. So basically just the whole lot. I don't know what's left. Maybe the words are the only thing that's left out of that. And their claim is because he plagiarised this song, he had no right to use it. Because the one who created it is the one who has the right of ownership. Okay? Well, David said here that the Lord has a right of ownership in our lives. Because he founded it upon the sea. He established it upon the waters. The King of Glory owns everything because the King of Glory created everything. I think that's why so many people today are so desperate to accept the theory of evolution and the big bang thing as to explain our, the, the why we're here, or to explain our existence. Because if they can claim that this world is simply the result of a mindless natural processes over billions of years, then it allows them to reject the reality of a creator. Which means there's nobody to answer to. Nobody to live for. Nobody to obey. But Paul says about Jesus that by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for This world was created by Jesus and for Jesus. To bring pleasure to Him. To honour Him. To reveal His glory. So He is the rightful owner of the universe. And so He is the right to claim ownership of everything. Including our lives. He has the right to call us to worship him as he deserves. But this doesn't mean that we can just worship God any old way. God deserves our worship, but can we really come to him? In verse 3 of this psalm, David asked, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? If this psalm really was written when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem, then this would be a natural question to ask. Who can climb up Mount Zion to the sanctuary to approach the Lord? Who can stand in that holy place and worship the Lord? Who's qualified? Who's accepted? And it's still a really crucial question for us today. Because many people treat God's presence as if it's no big deal. They expect that God would never prevent someone from coming and approaching him. That God would never impose any kind of restriction 
on them. Sure, they say, God is a God of love. So he'll accept everybody into his presence. Won't he? But David disagreed. He said that access into God's presence is restricted access. It is access that's limited to a select group of people. First of all, verse 4, it's limited to he who has clean hands and a pure heart. If we want to come into the presence of the Lord, then we need to be outwardly and inwardly clean. Our actions and our attitudes must be completely uncontaminated by anything that would be corrupt or anything that would be sinful. This is what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Who will see God? Who can come into God's presence? The pure in heart. Secondly, God's presence is only acceptable to the, or accessible to the person who does not lift up his soul to an idol. If we want to approach the Lord, then we need to be totally committed to him. We must not have placed anything in his place in our lives. That means no little statue of gold or silver or stone or wood. But it also means no person or no possession or no ambition or no right. Jesus said that the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And thirdly, God's presence is only accessible to the person who does not swear by what is false. If we want to approach the Lord, we need to be totally correct. We need to be totally committed to truth. Jesus said God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we can't just worship God any old way. We just can't just wander into his presence just the way we are. Only those who are clean, who are committed, who are correct, only those can stand in God's presence. Now that's not because God is just going to set up some arbitrary rules about this. He's not just raised kind of conditions just out there, out of his mind, uh, uh, just to think up out of his mind about why only those kind of people can come into his presence. Rather, this is because of who God is. Listen to what Peter said. He said this, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, Be holy because I am holy. The Lord is a holy God. He is separate from anything that would be impure. And so only those who are holy can come into His presence. Only those who are separate from anything impure can come and be in relationship with Him. If we are going to be accepted into the presence of God, into the very holiest of holies, then we need to be clean and committed and correct right at the very heart 
of our being. But that's a problem, isn't it? I hope none of us are sitting down saying, oh, well, that's okay, because that's how exactly I am. I never sin. I'm perfect. I never say anything wrong. I've never set up an idol in my life. I've never had any impure thoughts. If you think that way, well, wait till you get married, if you're not married yet, and then you'll realise all the things you're doing wrong. Sorry, dear. The reality is none of us are like that, are we? None of us are clean and committed and correct. None of us are holy. None of us are set apart from sin. Romans 3 and 8 and 10 says, There is no one righteous. Not even one. On our own, we do not have a totally pure heart. Our actions always come from kind of mixed motives. Our loyalties are divided. At times we're devoted to God's truth. Other times we find ourselves following the way of this world. Or our own ideas and desires. Our lives are contaminated by sin. So if it was up to us, none of us would have the right to come into the presence of God. If it was up to us, this psalm would be a psalm that would bar us from coming to God. But David says that the king of glory is not just holy, but he's also gracious. Because he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Saviour. This is the good news of the Gospel. Jesus came into this world to be our Saviour. On the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And so, if we come to Jesus with the humility to recognize and admit our sinfulness and put our faith in him, then we will be blessed. Or we will be vindicated. We will be declared righteous in God's sight. And so the King of glory will be able to welcome us into his presence if we first of all welcome him into our lives as our Saviour. And if we do, then finally we can rejoice in all the blessings of his victory. David concluded this psalm with the final answer about who the King of glory is. Who is the King of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And he repeats it again, just to make sure we get it. The Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. If you know anything about David's life, you'll know that he experienced this reality in his life, in many of the battles that he faced. The King of glory had fought for him and given him victory over his enemies he could rejoice that God was victorious over all the forces of evil. But today, we've already been celebrating a different kind of victory. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that donkey, he didn't look strong and mighty. When he was arrested, put on trial, flogged and nailed to a cross, he did not look 
mighty in battle. Hanging there on the cross in weakness and agony and shame. He did not appear to be the Lord of angel armies. And yet that was not a defeat. Instead, that was the most glorious of victories. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13, he forgave us all of our sins. Having cancelled the written code with his regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them by the cross. Triumphing over them by the cross. Through the weakness and the shame of the cross, Jesus once and for all defeated the powers of darkness. He broke the power of sin and death and set free forever those who put their trust in Him. That victory, it was revealed on the day that Jesus rose again from the grave. And one day it will be declared to this world when Jesus returns. But today, we can enter into that victory. If we welcome Jesus into our lives as our Savior and Lord, then He will bring us into His victory over sin and death. And so even although we do go through times of suffering and struggle and difficulty, we can rejoice that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Because we can rest in the security and in the certainty That no matter what we go through in our lives, nothing and no one can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is who Jesus is. And this is who He wants to be in our lives. He is the King who owns everything. He is the creator who made everything. He is the one who is holy and totally separate from sin. But he is also the one who loved us so much that he died on the cross to be our saviour, to rescue us from sin and death and hell and to bring us to himself. So let's not try and put God in a box. Let's not try and confine him to a tiny little part of our lives. Instead, let's welcome him into our whole life. Let's allow him to be everything that he is and everything that he wants to be for us. Let's open up the gates of our hearts so that the King of glory may come in.